have met the enemy, and he is us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 25 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast, where we talk about writing spies and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. Today is the last day of June, meaning 2022 is half over. I guess time does fly when you're having fun? Today also means we're winding up the promotion of terror. Yes, I know that sounds bad, but terror is book one of my new series, Meeting the Enemy. So several people have asked why the series title is Meeting the Enemy. Some have gone for what to them seems like the logical reason. It's a book about 9-11, so the enemy must be Al-Qaeda, Bin Laden, right? Partially right. The series overall is about 9-11 and its aftermath. And that aftermath reminded me of the adage, we have met the enemy and he is us. So, here comes a little history lesson. That adage has a couple of origins, the first of which is from 1813, during the War of 1812. That was when the British thought they could recapture their now independent North American colonies. Britain's supremacy on the seas, of course, was legendary. And in 1813, they had sailed down the St. Lawrence into Lake Erie to attack the U.S. from there, while other attacks were happening on the East Coast. But American naval officer Oliver Hazard Perry had other ideas. He and his ships defeated and captured the British ships which they then turned into American ships. But after that, he sent a rather boastful message to his commanding general. This was before they had admirals. He said, We have met the enemy, and they are ours. Two ships, two brigs, one schooner, and one sloop. Considering the fledgling U.S. Navy had defeated a portion of the British fleet, Perhaps not so boastful after all. His message about the victory he later sent to the Secretary of the Navy, William Jones, was more bureaucratic. The next allusion to meeting the enemy came from editorial and comic strip cartoonist Walt Kelly. Kelly got his start at Walt Disney's shop in 1935, working on Donald Duck cartoons. When he left Disney in 1941, 
He'd done animation for such Disney hits as Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, and several others. He went to Dell Comics, and while he was there, he drew Dell Comics issue number one of Animal Comics and introduced his characters Pogo the Possum and Albert the Alligator. Pogo, Albert, and a human child named Bumbazine lived and played in the Okefenokee Swamp, which lies in parts of Georgia and Florida in the U.S. It was what you might say a hybrid comic. It appealed to both children and adults. But Kelly struggled with the voice of the human child and eventually switched the comic to all anthropomorphic animals, meaning animals with human characteristics. Because Kelly included a great deal of political satire and sarcasm in his work, having animals, cartoon animals, express political opinions somehow went over the censors' heads. After World War II and a stint as a journalist, he became an editorial cartoonist and then created a daily comic strip for a newspaper featuring Pogo, Albert, and other characters he'd created for the animal comics. The comic strip Pogo was first published in October 1948, but unfortunately in a newspaper that shut down in January of 1949. However, Pogo had made an impression and was very popular, and so it was immediately picked up for national syndication, meaning it ran daily with new strips in newspapers across the country. And that continued until 1972, when Kelly became ill and was unable to draw. So popular was the comic strip, though, that the syndicator took older strips from the 50s and 60s and put new text in the word balloons for the characters. Kelly unfortunately died in 1973, and some others took over the strip, but they didn't have Kelly's wit and acumen for satire, so Pogo ended in 1975. It was briefly revived in the 1990s, but talking animals in a comic strip didn't have quite the same impact. In Pogo, the animals were the smart ones, and the human characters Kelly introduced were often caricatures of politicians or socialites or celebrities. The most recognizable of these was Simple J. Malarkey, which was a caricature of Senator Joseph McCarthy of the Red Scare fame or infamy. That was pretty brave of Kelly, since McCarthy often used his influence to encourage newspapers to drop reporters or columnists or cartoonists. Kelly, however, defied McCarthy's threats by drawing a bag over Malarkey's head, 
a bag that looked a lot like a clansman's hood. So Kelly could be subtle and not so. And he also parodied other political figures like Castro and Nikita Khrushchev, always in the form of an animal that sort of fit the person. So Khrushchev, who was known to be, shall we say, a bit overweight, was a pig. Uh, Richard Nixon, Nelson Rockefeller, Eugene McCarthy, and even Robert Kennedy. Politicians, those of us who grew up in the 60s and 70s, are quite familiar with. And no one of either political party at the time was spared his rapier wit. Kelly was well-recognized and accepted in literary circles, praised by Carl Sandburg, and was the first comic strip artist to have his original drawings placed in the Library of Congress. His list of awards is amazing. If you Wikipedia him, you'll find a lot of really interesting things about his life and his history as a political cartoonist. And other political cartoonists, such as Jeff McNelly, who did the strip Shoe, and Gary Trudeau, with the famous Doonesbury, and others have cited Kelly as an influence and an inspiration. And even Jim Henson, creator of The Muppets, called Kelly an influence on the Muppets brand of humor. In 1971, for Earth Day, I think it was that was the second Earth Day, I'm pretty sure 1970 was the first one because I was in a particular year at high school, and we got a day off, my class did, to go to a stretch of road outside of our town and and clean up the roadside. So anyway, for the 1971 Earth Day, Kelly was asked by the government to do an anti-pollution, anti-littering poster, and he did which means it became public domain. So the first panel of the poster shows Pogo and another character called Porcupine walking in a pristine Okefenokee swamp, talking about the beauty of the forest primeval. And then Pogo complains about something sticking to his feet And the next panel shows the effect of littering and pollution on the swamp. It's filled with trash, old cars, tires, barrels, all manner of detritus left there by humans. To which Pogo says, we have met the enemy and he is us. It was a powerful message at the beginning of the ecology awareness movement, the environmental movement. I remember it quite well. I remember as well my grandmother reading me Pogo when I was a child. That phrase, we have met the enemy and he is us, took on different meanings over the years, principally in editorials and op-eds, criticizing almost every presidential administration's decision or policy since the 1970s. 
When the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003 on false pretenses, and when some blunders like taking pictures of naked prisoners at Abu Ghraib made the news, that phrase, we have met the enemy and he is us, was used by us against us, but in a definite Walt Kelly-like fashion. So in my mind, there was no better title for my series about 9-11 and its aftermath than Meeting the Enemy, because, hello, some things we did in the aftermath certainly made us our own enemy. So go find some Pogo and read some Walt Kelly. As a child, being read Pogo by my grandmother, they were simply funny comic strips to me. It wasn't until years later that I could appreciate his commentary, and he didn't mince words. And now it's commercial time. Prologue to Terror, the reader magnet prequel for Terror, book one of Meeting the Enemy, will remain on sale throughout the summer. And who knows, maybe Terror will go on sale at some point too. Yes, again, sounds weird. Starting tomorrow, July 1st, we'll be celebrating the first book birthday of my short story collection, Spy Flash 3, The Moscow Rules. The ebook of that collection will be only 99 cents for all of July. And look for some free days later in the month as well. I'll put the links to the sales page in the description of this episode. And commercial over. Let's now have our final reading from book one of Meeting the Enemy. To get the whole story, you're going to have to go buy the book. You know, that's kind of what we're here for. But I'll set up these chapters that I'm going to read. Mai has finally been assigned to lead a CIA paramilitary team into Afghanistan, and she gets the word when she and the team are to leave. However, she has some things to take care of first. And we'll meet a woman from Nelson's past and one for his future. Meeting the Enemy, Book One, Terror, Chapter 59, October 28, 2001, CIA Headquarters. Right on the deadline he'd given the president, Boyd Waller had dispatched CIA teams to Afghanistan, laden with millions of dollars. Mai was not among them, and when she'd queried Waller about that, all she got was, soon, soon. And the team's report started coming in. Waller had ordered them earmarked for her. Research, 
he'd said, to make sure she was fully prepared. She'd read every one of them. Mai closed the file she had finished reading and tossed it in her outbox. Bloody hell. One more porn-worthy report from a CIA team about Afghani warlords' sex lives, and she'd bloody well scream. She opened the next file in the stack, read a few lines, and said, Bloody suffering Jesus! Zelma Nisbet appeared in the doorway, her suit perfect as always, her hair perfect as always. Miss Burke, is something wrong? Nisbet asked. No, yes, uh, no. Sorry for interrupting your work. Nisbet looked at the inbox stack compared to the outbox stack. Do you have a problem with the most recent reports from case officers already in Afghanistan? Yes. Listen to this. Mai picked up a sheet of paper and read aloud. This warlord prefers the missionary position with wife number one, but the canine position with wife number three. We are unable to ascertain the preferred position for wife number two. It's all soft porn, nothing strategic. Nisbet closed the office door and came to the desk, indicating the chair in front of it. May I? she asked. Of course. You know, I'm sure, about the sisterhood, Nisbet said. They were legends even in the directorate. Indeed, some of them had heavily recruited Grace Lydell, the directorate's head of analysis, to join them. Yes, the cadre of female analysts given the hardest problems to solve in the CIA, Mai said. They've probably found bin Laden a half dozen times in the last few years, but their reasoning, their interpretations of the intelligence, was always questioned. They may have gotten plenty of intel on bin Laden's sex habits, but if it bore no relationship to the task of finding him, they never included it in a report. Now, the case officers and paramilitary teams in Afghanistan right now are all men, until you arrive. The tone of the reports read to me as if the case officers reporting and the analysts who are synthesizing the intel vicariously appreciate men who can have more than one wife in a culture and a religion that encourage it, as well as the ability to put women in their place. Precisely. Well, I can't believe either the case officer or the analyst who prepared this report actually used the words canine position. A thin smile came and went on Nisbet's face. Doggy style isn't in the correspondence manual, she said, straight face. Nisbet, you made a joke. On occasion, I can be quite the life of the party. My sighed and rubbed her face. I know how many wives each warlord has, how often he has sex with them or his mistresses. What I don't have is usable intel on bin Laden's whereabouts or any of the key Taliban leaders. That makes me feel as if I'm going in blind. I don't like that. 
another sigh. I do understand the obsession with sex. They aren't getting any, but damn it, neither am I. My frustration, however, about these crappy analyses is mounting. Nisbet's smile appeared and stayed this time. Oh, God, mounting, Mai repeated. Jesus wept. Now I'm fixated on sex. I simply can't read any more of these. Well, I'll remind you, your initials are required on each one. Mai stared at her. Of course, Nisbet said, since they are all so similar, I'm sure initialing can be a perfunctory exercise. Mai smiled, picked up a pin, and began to add her initials on the grids attached to each report. How is the training going with your team? Nisbet asked. She'd rarely engaged Mai in small talk, so Mai decided to be cautious. We've been at it a couple of weeks, and the rapport is good. I'm not certain my trust in them is where it should be yet. Not the same as with your partner, I should imagine. Mai stopped and looked at Nisbet with a bland expression. Nisbet continued, That would be a bar too high for most to meet. In your opinion, are you ready to deploy? I have been since September 11th. Nisbet smiled again, and Mai wasn't sure she'd ever seen that many smiles from her mysterious assistant. All done? Nisbet asked. Mai closed the last folder and set her pen aside. Finished. Excellent. I'll take them and move them along. Nisbet stood and collected the stack of folders. I've been working on your and your team's travel orders. Boyd wants to tell you himself, so act surprised and pleased when he says you're leaving in three days. I certainly will. Is that time enough to wrap up things at home? More suspicion. Um, yes, plenty. Good luck, Miss Burke, with your mission. At the door, Nisbet turned back to Mai with yet another smile. When you speak to him, give Mr. Nelson my regards. Chapter 61 October 31st, 2001 Directorate Headquarters Michelle St. Augustine let herself into Nelson's private quarters. He'd only recently given her the access code, and she'd wondered if that signaled some sort of shift in their relationship. She knew he'd had others, plenty of them, serially, before her, but she wouldn't ask about what getting the access code meant. She might not like the answer. What was unusual was the fact Nelson was in his quarters at the unprecedented hour of 1700. He lay half reclined on a sofa and had a drink in hand. He looked over at her entrance and smiled. Looking for me? he asked. Oops, I, 
I'd planned on meeting my lover here because you rarely leave the office earlier than 10 or 11 at night, she replied, teasing. Well, you'll have to disappoint him and settle for me instead. Michelle sat on the sofa, nestled at the crook of his waist. Is everything okay? she asked. Of course. Better now that you're here. Since the office is right outside the door, I can knock off early once in a while. She leaned down and kissed him, but his return kiss was perfunctory, sending a stab of insecurity into her stomach. I asked Dieter to leave something in the warmer for our dinner, he said. Are you hungry? Not until I know what's wrong. Shell, everything is fine. I can read your moods by now. Something is up. He sat up, took a pull from his drink, his eyes on her, flat and without emotion. This must have been what he'd been like as an operative. Everyone always talked about how Alexei Bukharin was called Iceman because of his legendary lack of feeling. But Nelson's expression told her he'd have been a competitor for the coldest of cold ops. Over there, on the desk, he said. Michelle frowned but went to the desk. She saw a courier's envelope marked Nelson, eyes only. It was still sealed. She flipped it over to see the sender's name. My Fisher. What's this? Michelle asked. Don't know. As you see, I haven't opened it. Why not? I might not like what's inside. Did she leave for Afghanistan? Nelson checked his watch. She should be over her drop zone right about now. He nodded to the envelope she held. That arrived yesterday from her house. Nelson drained his drink and set the empty glass on the coffee table. Another? Michelle asked. He shook his head. You got this yesterday and haven't read it? Like I said, I may not like it. Read it to me. She pointed to the eyes-only message. You have my permission, Nelson said, smiling. Michelle sat beside him this time. She broke the seal and emptied the envelope. A CD in a jewel case and a sealed envelope. Nelson took the jewel case and looked at what was written on the label. Ah, little insurance policy, he said. Well, what is it? The results of a surveillance job I assigned my the day after 9-11. Her prelim report was that it was hot stuff. She was going to hang on to it, but she must have thought I could put it to good use sooner. And she thinks that's now? Well, read the letter and tell me. Michelle pursed her lips and didn't move to open the envelope. Michelle, my and I were never, ever lovers, so don't worry about any confessions. Would you read it, please? All right. Michelle opened the envelope and removed the single sheet of paper, unfolding it. Across its top, beneath two coats of arms, were the words, From the desk of Her Grace, the Countess Uxfield. Who's the Countess Uxfield? Michelle asked. Nelson smiled and lifted an eyebrow. Seriously? Michelle said, and he nodded. Wow? Okay, 
Here goes. October 29th, 2001. Nelson, it seems like a cliché. But you're getting this because you and I both know there's a good possibility I won't be coming back. I intend to find Alexei or die trying or die with him, if it comes to that. In case the outcome is negative, I decided you might need to put the audio and the photographs to use sooner rather than later. Great minds think alike, Nelson said. Go on. Also, I suspect Alexei sent you some sort of final communication which you arbitrarily decided I didn't need to know about. You know I abhor having things hidden from me. I shan't be sentimental, because you'd suspect my sanity if I were. Nor will I either thank you for all your managerial support, which you provided at the best and worst of times, nor apologize for any of my past behavior. You exploited my personal foibles and weaknesses for the benefit of the directorate. I don't dispute that. That was your job. Rather, I acknowledge where I was concerned. You never put the personal ahead of the professional. We both know you overlooked any questionable behavior on my part because of Alexei. Alexei is my partner, my teacher, my mentor, but most importantly, my lover and, oh yes, my husband. But I've never been to him what you are. Somewhere along the line, I stopped regarding it as a competition and ceded you the privileged position of his sibling, best friend, and confidant. I harbor no resentment, nor can I, given my relationship with the late and much-lamented Edwin Terrell. I've always known if Alexei had to choose between my life and yours, yours would be the one he saved. Oh, is she ever wrong about that? Nelson said. Again, no resentment, rather acceptance. I'm not saying goodbye, bad luck and all that. Let us hope at some point in the near future, the three of us, or perhaps four, since you seem more besotted than I've ever seen you, will have drinks and watch this letter burn in your fireplace. No, I will move heaven and earth and kill as many Taliban as I need to find Alexei. In the process, he and I may both die without ever setting eyes on each other again, which is unacceptable. At least, we'll die in the same place on earth, and in that sense, be together. Maitland K. Fisher P.S. Since you were so instrumental in Alexei's decision to make an honest woman of me all those years ago, allow me to offer the same advice. M.K.F. Michelle hoped she wasn't blushing. And she said she wasn't going to be sentimental, Nelson said. For my, that was close to gushing. Let's get a plate of whatever Dieter made for dinner and listen to the juicy audio, shall we? Is... My clearance level high enough for that? Michelle asked. Well, we'll need to raise that, seeing as we're getting married. What? 
If you're expecting me to go down on one knee, forget it. I'll never get back up. I wasn't wrong to assume you're not the hearts and flowers type, was I? Oh, no, no, that's not me. Are, are you sure you really want to do this? Yes, I am. I think it's time, don't you? Yeah, it's time. Good. I can have someone here tomorrow morning unless you want to do the traditional thing. God, no. But, but what? Don't you want to wait for Alexei to return to be your best man? Shell, I've got a few years on you. Quite a few, in fact. I don't want to wait. Tomorrow morning will be perfect. Excellent. Dish us up some food, woman, he said, winking at her and I'll find a bottle of champagne to celebrate with while we listen to this CD. All right, that's enough for today. Again, Terror is available. <laughs> yes, it's available as an ebook, a paperback, and a hardcover. And the link will be in this episode's description. This past week was PTSD Awareness Day. So remember those fireworks you find so enthralling may trigger a veteran's PTSD. Not to mention scaring your pets you-know-whatless. So this July the 4th, spend some quality time keeping an eye out for spies. The proceeding has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Join us next week for a new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. And I'll end today's episode with this quote from Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious RBG. The decision whether or not to bear a child is central to a woman's life, to her well-being and dignity. It is a decision she must make for herself. When government controls that decision for her, she is being treated less than a full adult human, responsible for her own choices. <laughs>